Hey guys, Rafe here from Evolving Play. Today I'm with Katie Bowman. Katie is the author of eight books about natural movement, dynamic aging, and movement ecology, um, and many other subjects that are uh, related to movement. Um, she's been immensely influential in my uh, own movement practice and my understanding of movement. So I'm very grateful to Katie for appearing on the podcast today. Um, is there anything you'd like to say uh, to introduce yourself? Just uh, thanks for having me, first of all, and hello to everyone out there. And no, I guess by, about myself, I like to talk about movement. We both like to talk <laughs> about movement. I like to write about movement, but I like to move more than doing either one of those other things that I was talking about. So yeah. So, so let me ask you just to start. Um, what does what does movement look like in your life right now? Can you give people a, a breakdown of perhaps the practice of movement isn't the right word for you, but your practice? Of yeah. Movement. Well, if we if we just if we just talk about movement as simply being things that move your body in any physical way. I mean, you want like a 24-hour period sure, of a 24-hour right. period, period of movement? Hour period of um, well, I have tried to um, execute a lot of things by by reclaiming previous like movements that I had not been getting in due to various technologies in my house. So like, I'll grind my own coffee beans in the morning for coffee, right? Because that was something that I could do like this, but now I can do it like this with a slightly older piece of machinery. Um, a walk, trying to do something like usually to the post office in the morning or I might meet my friends early in the morning to do a longer stretch. I try to incorporate a longer distance bout of walking. So something three to five miles um, every day and then try to get upwards of the 10 to 20 mile range monthly. So if it's if it's a 20 mile day, then that's all I do mostly on the bulk of the day is walk. But on an average day, I'll walk a little bit, come home, get my kids ready to go to nature school, um, often like parking farther away to walk them to school and back. I work as obviously I'm a, a hyper producer of writing books, so I still do that, but I've tried to make it as movement rich as possible. So I have standing and I have a dynamic work setup, meaning in my office, there's places to stand and sit. Um, lots of various tools and textures that can be moving lots of parts of me even when I'm fairly still you know because I can't leave my keyboard and then when I notice a lull of productivity that would make, normally send you to social media or something while you're still sitting there I'll use that as a cue to get up and step away because I'm obviously not being productive or creative in that moment and take care of some other task or just move you know for the sake of movement and then um, I teach a couple classes a week and during those classes is when I will lead other groups of people through some of the more refined movements and the way that I look at those types of movements is we have so many adaptations to various well basically to our habitat you and I have a similar habitat as probably most people watching technologically like computer full whatever this new technology isn't even the right word because you know that would put like a moccasin with my smartphone in the yeah. same category. So um, information dense, you know, yeah. things that you're getting, screens, like those, they have a particular physical bending of your body, chairs and um, shoes and all those things. So the movements that I teach are really trying to look for local sedentarism inside an otherwise active body. So if you've read Move Your DNA, I know you have a lot of those movements you're a super active guy. So many people are movers. I, I have Olympians that come in like they're they're not in the they're not classically sedentary, and they're they're not even not classically sedentary. Meaning they're moving upwards of like five or six hours a day, but they're not moving all of them. So there are these like sedentary spots, groups that are clusters of sedentary cells. So I like to teach correctives where someone could kind of assess their body to see, wow, I didn't realize that. When I, when I thought I could move here, but I'm really moving a hinge up here so that one could distribute their movement more evenly or continue to pursue their larger movements using more of their body, which makes them more sustainable. Like, so athletes, yeah. they do a lot of uh, smaller repetitive motions often, or even, even when something looks super diverse, you know, even like climbing a tree will use lots of you, but the amount of diversity of movement that you need is probably so great that unless you're moving all day long like someone subsisting it's hard to get all of the areas so to kind of just look through your own body and see i didn't realize this wasn't moving i'll address it in some way and then um, my house you've been to my house so you yeah. know it's set up for movement mm -hmm. um, we don't have 
that we don't have furniture in the classic sense so if i'm taking rest like anyone watching netflix or whatever it's going to be on the floor um just to you know to, I'm not doing any exercise down. Sometimes I do exercise on the floor because there's all that yeah. space, but just the act of getting up and down on the floor to take rest has more movement to it. And our beds are, uh, there's been so many tours in my house like that. Our beds are low. Um, um, we do a lot of floor sleeping or ground sleeping. And then we try to, um, we've been trying more and more to actually live outside more and more cooking, you know, our kitchen to yeah. low tables chopping, but then like really trying to go like, what would it be like to, actually live outside and if you camp you get a sense of what that's like but when you do it for extended periods of time you're like wow there's a lot more movement that goes into warmth and food yeah. when you're doing it in that way so that's 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 really how i get my movement these days awesome. okay that's super interesting and uh you know i know i can speak to it a little bit because after reading move your dna um i i adopted working on the floor as mm. opposed to working on my couch uh, so I'll stand um, or I'll work on the floor. And I noticed right away that, uh, or after a, a period of time, that a lot of the mobility work that I needed to do to maintain my ankles, hips, and knees kind of disappeared as a necessity, mm. right? That flexibility just came from the, the activities that I was doing. Um, so that's, I think, a huge thing that people can do. And it's actually something I recommend to everybody who comes to my seminars. It's like, if you can adopt not sitting in chairs, we're sitting sort of in chairs today, but I don't think it's a negative thing so much sure. except in the way that it it sits in place of all these other movements that would be right. moving our bodies. Yeah, sitting in chairs is fine. It's like the it's the frequency of it and the fact like this is I don't have any chairs that put my knees and hips to this particular yeah. angle. So this is basically this is me moving yeah. uniquely right now. So that's awesome. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I've been kind of struggling with in my own conceptualization of movement that, that comes up there is so you, you said something about in order to move all the pieces of your body um, as much as they need, you would have to kind of live the life of a hunter-forager. And so I've been thinking about this idea of, of movement as a big picture, right? When, so there's a, I would say most of my audience is, is part of movement culture and they look at movement as, as skills or a, a family of skills or ways of doing interesting things with your body. And I think what, what your work does is it sort of opens up the idea of movement in a, to a much broader mm -hmm. lens that includes essentially any time that you're displacing your body. Now, the question that I have been kind of circling around is how much, well, I don't think we know, and I, I wanna ask you about this, but all these little micro movements that happen in the life of a hunter forager, that happened in a traditional life before we had all these technological aids. It seems to me that there's probably a, um, we have, I guess the impression that I get from, from Move Your DNA is you need to move more, which, which is really a, a great call to action. But the question that I have that's in is how do you kind of, how would we go about even establishing a homeostatic norm, right? It's like, you need to be walking humans walked for a certain amount of time throughout a long period of time of their evolution. So there's going to be a norm that kind of maintains the physiological health of a human mm -hmm. being. But then they also would have been, that would have been very variable from one environment to another. And so we're, we're there's probably a range in which we can function. There's a range which actually there's too much and we start breaking down, a range that's insufficient and we start breaking down the other way, we start atrophying. So I'm curious, if you can talk about, you know, how, how you think about that aspect of where is the homeostatic range of this huge diversity of movement that we can then start articulating out, how would we even go about answering that question on something that's so much more vast than like, what's your VO2 max? Well, I, that's why that's why I call my work nutritious movement yeah. because I think at the end of the day, which is going to be 400 years from now. Yeah. Um, we will understand that the approach to understanding what you're calling homeostasis, it would be like, I would probably use the word like, um, uh, like your, your nutritional guidelines. Like what are the nutrition, what are the movement nutritional guidelines? Like what are the, the minimums? And that's what nutrition gives us, right? It says like, we, you have an RDA. Now, of course, that's a bit flawed in that 
a nutrient is identified. It's like first we have to identify a nutrient. I'm gonna be all over the place right yeah, now because it's one of those things, it's a very, we're talking about something very large and it's almost like it's, it, it's gone from your brain and then you have to go find yeah. it again because we're talking about things that we don't even have languages for yet. Absolutely. So first we have to have, a, what is a nutrient? So we know what a nutrient is and we like we rattle them off so easily they make so much sense for us this idea that you need vitamin a and d and e and k and you need small chain triglycerides and you need proteins carbs and fats like so someone has done all of this work categorizing all of these things yeah. for us and we got them in elementary school frankly you yeah. know and maybe a little bit you know at university or later on in high school or just through engaging and reading the internet that body of understanding took 500 years and is still in progress, right? Like we're still finding, I mean, now there's a microbiome, like the fact that like what's on the things that you put on your mouth might also be at play or an environment in which you're eating might also be considered things that you need. So nutrients are identified in hindsight yep. by looking at populations of people that for whatever particular, usually a natural, uh, they are natural experiments like prisoners or sailors groups of people that for whatever reason have been isolated or behaved as a cultural anthropologist right they they share a certain set of behavior and so it makes them a particular group where they're sharing inputs but then maybe you would see certain things erupt from that particular group that another similarish group same same human beings same modern human beings but who live in a different environment, eat different foods or whatever, they have a different set of physical experiences. So then you start to go, well, what's different between the two? Why are their bodies behaving so differently? And then you begin to say, oh, well, they were eating these foods and then, and then you identify foods that might be important and then you get out your microscopes and then you look in your foods and, and, and um, like, for, I, I find the process of vitamin C discovery to be really amazing and maybe, a great place to start and it's interesting so we they had sailors and also prisoners less they bring that up less in second grade um who had a particular diet they were limited because obviously um they were bringing all their food with them and through experimentation maybe like non no experts doing it but they recognized like over time that it was a lack of um fruits and vegetables right so they started to work back and then they but someone had already found on a ship that if they could give their sailors oranges or citrus fruit that they wouldn't have those same symptoms so like okay well then what what is what is in this so called the brits limies is that what it is oh that's right that's right i, did, I remember hearing <laughs> that before so then it's like what is it about an orange and so they thought it was one particular part of what was in an orange because you obviously can't fill the holes of a boat with a ship journey's worth of fruit because it'll go bad so they started to extract into particular vials and everyone took that that didn't work so whatever they had extracted they knew it was of a citrus fruit but what they had chosen to parse in that case wasn't the right thing so through lots of now we're at a micro now we're at a microscope level of process found what the actual active component was that addressed, what was the nutrient specifically that addressed that particular disease. And they're all kind of like that. I mean, vitamin D is also super fascinating. And just to read um, the histories of those, um, to see how everyone thought they knew what it was for 80 years or 90 years and the battles in between. It was like, well, don't be ridiculous. It couldn't be that, which is exactly what happens today. Mm -hmm. It's the nature of a large group of people thinking on one line and then you know you experiment and you figure it out and then over time it's not like once you have the data everyone goes oh yeah. there's just an understanding like has its own momentum but over time you change so we got it handed down pretty easily but why i'm referring back to this with your initial question is we know that movement is essential in that if you were like to always i always go for the extreme example like if you were completely unable to move for a medical condition and bedridden you would have to be moved because the pressure of not moving is enough to start killing the cells in that particular area and then other systems start shutting down so we know like okay well how much do i have to move more than being in a bed okay so now we have our first data point and then we are many data points later and there is a set of data points like oh okay well to be healthy you need i don't even know what the U.S. government minimums are, the Surgeon General minimums are, but you need 
20 minutes of three met exercise, yeah. you need this many minutes of strength training. Like it's, we are going down the idea of dosage mm -hmm. right now, but people doing those minimums aren't necessarily getting the benefit. And like, then the story changes. Well, you actually, now you need core stabilizing exercises too, to add those other things. And so our movement diet has been getting consistently more complex since the seventies and the eighties, right? Or maybe even before then a little bit, as far as the government actually having recommendations, it was calisthenics, but for a certain period of time, now we're to 10,000 steps is another dosage attempt. Um, but the more people you talk to who are experts in different fields and the more they say, well, you also need to be doing this. So our dosage keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so now it's how many minutes a day there are minimum, but we're not exactly sure which health you have to do weight bearing exercise. If you want your bones to be healthy too, and your otherwise fit body. And so I think it's going to take hundreds of years. I also think as far as the technology that's going to be required, one big thing, that I think I was trying to do with Move Your DNA is to help recognize that movement is on the cellular level. Yeah. Meaning the cellular adaptations that are protective against movement are on the cellular level. Not, it's not like relative to any particular whole body state. Mm -hmm. And now that's kind of a way of saying that you have to move each one of your parts. Because even if you have a ton of really great moving parts, you're sedentary as far as your unmoving parts are concerned and those areas can load your body in a particular unhealthy way or express distress or disease. So I don't know, I think it's gonna be hundreds of years. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I think you and I have maybe defaulted towards more of a natural movement stance because it's kind of like, well, we don't know all the technicalities um, that will arise, but there's kind of this idea that what humans have been doing for a long time matches really well with the structure and because the movements that they did at a particular time is also what created their structure then then they're kind of in a they're in a they're in an ecology or a relationship with each other and there's a diversity of human experience like even if we talk about hunter gatherer or or humans hundreds of thousands of years ago you're going to have sea going people and i've talked about this on my yeah. podcast of like you have sea faring people and you can tell by looking at their bones that they're paddlers yeah, yeah. so like they're adapting to it and you have people who you know didn't have trees you know so like you have quite a diversity but at the end of the day what i try to focus on are all the commonalities assuming that like no that everyone had to walk from point a to point b quite regularly and to get an experience of what that would look like and how different it is you know if you're in an urban setting is to go having to get wood to build a fire in a place where there's no place to buy wood you're like wow i'm i am moving and bending all over the place for one fire for one night of camping now imagine doing it every day, every day for 40 or 50 years and um squatting because everyone was going to the bathroom right so you know so like you've got defecation at least doing yeah. sitting and maybe you have rocks and things to sit on but but chances are, since you're moving, those weren't coming with you. So the ability to move really well to and from the floor and squat down, I can, I feel okay thinking like, well, these are gonna be probably some movements that most of the general features of the body that we accept to be, you know, yeah. human were shaped by um, short distance walking, long distance walking, using the feet to press into the ground, um, being able to deal with temperatures in a particular area because there wasn't abundant clothing or even, um, thermostats you know so like i, I stick yeah. with those like so texture walking hands like the basics I think that was a very striking thing for me in, in reading your work was the realization that you could conceptualize like cold exposure and heat exposure as movement for the body yeah and and, and that's a training that we need it's an adaption that that we need so but it's a muscular movement yeah i mean i think that's the thing like yeah. it like there are so many non-fitness movements, non-skill related movements, but only because you're, you're setting the skill. So the more skills you set for yourself, more movements are gonna be required. So there's an idea that's come to me and kind of in reference to your work as well as uh, my friend Stephen Gee in it, but mm -hmm. I, I've started to conceptualize um, 
I, I don't, I don't, it's not exactly movements, but it's things that we experience in our life as kind of divided between nourishments, nutrients, and stimulants. And I wanted to kind of get your mm. take on this. So to me, a nourishment is, is a thing that traditionally existed, right? That's been around for a long time. So the sun is a nourishment. We don't, we can't, we can't perfectly, we don't necessarily know all the ways in which the sun nourishes Correct. the body. A citrus fruit is a nourishment. And then as we've gone through the process of production from science, which has given us this enormous technological power, it's put some blinders on us because we start to think of things as the nutrients. So that's the isolated piece. Scurvy is cured by vitamin C. So now an orange is a source of vitamin C. Right. So we're able to isolate out those, those pieces in a way that we've never been able to isolate them out prior to this. And that, that's really valuable in specific circumstances. But there's a, a potential for hubris which arises where we look at, um, we, we say we've figured out all the pieces, now we can build the perfect way to eat based on the pieces. Um, I believe that's called nutrientism in movement circles and, and it doesn't really work. Right. You, you, can't, you can't synthesize something that's better than breast milk. And we tried, we thought we could. And, and I think that the same thing is kind of the, the driving paradigm for me in natural movement. You can't, you can't isolate out all the pieces of movement and hope to achieve something that's like the traditional nourishment. And, uh, and then the stimulant part is uh, when we create things that, when we find specific nutrients, I suppose, or specific isolated pieces that that tap into hyper-reward circuitry in the brain, that tap into reward circuitry in the brain and create a hyper-rewarding stimulation, those are the ways in which it becomes very easy to manipulate our behavior in order to make money. So you have these three kind of core pieces. And sorry, this is becoming not a not a question so much as a here's my idea, but it felt very connected to a lot of the ideas that you were talking about in, in movement maps. How do we address this idea of reductionism? Reductionism <laughs> gives us so much power, and yet it also gives us these blindness, and we have to be able to to um, to find a balance in the way that we look at these systems between a systems ecological level of thinking and a and a, and a parts level of thinking, and and it seems like your thinking has also been evolving in that direction. I mean, and I wanted to kind of give that to you and just let <laughs> see you see what I would do with it. it. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I think about that a lot. Yeah. Um. You know, the more you the more you work in biology and think about in terms of biology and specifically like how how humans behave as a reflex to their environment. And this was, this was in Movement Matters, this idea that like we are, we are parsers, mm -hmm. meaning like we are, we're reducing it either on paper or in thought or sometimes in its structure. But we too are reduced. Like these, these are reductions. Like we, we used to be fully integrated in a whole, like the, the ultimate, <clears throat> nourishment is the earth but we've removed ourselves from interacting with it full stop we've put up many types of walls shoes is a wall shoes are a wall a pair of shoes is a wall um, the buildings that you live in are walls um, changes in communities are walls like we've we've physically blocked out you know sunglasses like we, we've removed it for various reasons and along but along with every time you block something, you still needed whatever portion, like what does a building keep you from? Keeps you from Light, temperature. noise, temperature, texture, um, other people's needs sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and, but you still needed the thing, right? Because you don't know all of the, the nourishment that's coming from the sun. You know vitamin D and UVB because those are the two things and light. Yeah. But because you don't know what you've lost, you've reverse engineered the technologies that replace the thing that you're simultaneously blocking out, which is kind of what makes it unsustainable in the end because you harvested the thing to block it out and now you're harvesting the thing to re-put back what taking down your blocking out would allow you. So driving cars to walk on treadmills. Well, yeah, I mean, that's like, that's like, that is, you think that's like that kind of example, but, but it's, it's, similar oh we need to walk okay well we have created an entire location where it's not safe for anyone to walk so then we will 
make an enclosure of just the element of walking mm -hmm. and put you in it. So I think that there is a relationship. This is one of the reasons that I do what I do. I think that there's a relationship between the parsed person and how much the person has to parse to understand and solve. Kind of like, here's a good example I think that most people listening can relate to. Many of our feet mm -hmm. were not suitable for not, for, un, for not wearing shoes. Yeah. Our feet were adapted to shoes. We had to have that, you had to have that structure. To remove it required that you did quite a bit of, of physical work. You had to basically upgrade the movement and the strength in your feet, which also harvests because you have to eat to fuel this now yeah. thing that's making more, you're building more. But the end goal for the reason that I do it is to not need the technology which harvests that I that I could I'm still harvesting we're always harvesting yeah. because we we need to exist but I can choose if I harvest the thing like less material for my minimal shoes or wearing bare feet so that I can go through fewer shoes in a lifetime so that what I harvest is more local to me it's within my own system so I've been trying I did that with the feet as everyone probably knows but then I, heart, I got to the point where I could use my body so I didn't have to have furniture. Because I think of all these things as needs. Like one of the things, like from a philosophical standpoint, is we have this idea of what a human is, what makes a human biologically as far as a taxonomy is concerned. And we have an anatomy. And that anatomy, as far as biological definition goes, is entirely contained within my skin. It's deep to my skin, is my anatomy. But if you can't live without anatomy supports, shoes, clothing, and let's not even talk about for propriety's sake, because you need it, but simply because I couldn't physiologically exist where I dwell without it, then I, I've started to view philosophically, but it's becoming more, it's becoming more real to me, is these are exoskeletons. You know what I mean? Like, if I can't function with it, then the energy that goes into my exoskeletons is much higher than the energy that would go into just me. That I could make my consumption much more local to just maybe foodstuffs um, or plants that I, you know, like how to figure out like how everything's coming from basically plants or animals. Yeah. It's all coming from plants or animals, or I guess the earth, if you want to go inorganic. Yeah. Um, that by being more physically robust, I need less exoskeleton, less time in exoskeleton, less consumption overall, besides what it takes to simply build my own physical structure. And then when you, you know, if you get ill or sick, then those are other technologies or other exoskeletons that prop you up to keep you going. So it's, it's not arbitrarily, I think, for this idea of health, because I think health is again, maybe, it's a nutrient-centric perspective rather than like, how can I be more harmonious in terms of uh, the things that I'm after, which, which is physical robusticity, but for the purpose of daily activities, which is the definition of physical fitness, but to, but to my, if my physical daily activities are to be able to walk on a treadmill, that's different than a hazda, modern subsist people who are subsisting in nature, their daily activities. So because we've set physical fitness up, you could train to have the same physical fitness as a hazda, but your activities of daily living are so different, you could meet the same capacity for VO2 max or like max heart rate, but what you're doing with your body differs so much, you're not like distributing it all pretty well. So. I am approaching movement nutrition in the way that by moving as many parts of my body as possible, I'm distributing nourishment pretty well. By moving more frequently, I'm not only distributing to all my parts well, I'm doing that distribution often. I'm watering my garden frequently. Um, and then I'm choosing to do it in a way where my intention for why I'm doing it is to consume less. So I wish I had read the end of Movement Matters. Yeah, you're not there yet, fitness. but you're gonna get you're gonna get there. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like I'd be able to, to articulate a question yeah. about about it seems like that's you're talking about that kind of like 
what do you move for? And I think this mm -hmm. is this uh, really it's actually um, been a fundamental question that I've been really digging mm -hmm. into and asking myself because uh, you know I do jumps. I jump from one high place to another and do. I have seen the video. I know you do. <laughs> you look good doing it. Thank you. Um, and the realization that people ask me, well, why, what are you training for? Uh -huh. What are you training for? That's a question I hear a lot. And I've been I've been trying to dig into the why. And the why that I'm kind of like hearing from you um, is sort of that, you, it's like George Hebert said, be strong to be useful, but it's almost like be strong to be self, not self-reliant, but self-contained, self-competent. Self I don't think we're ever self-competent because I think that's a particular perspective. Or, like, yeah. I mean, I think it is to be useful. I like that be strong to be useful. Maybe be harmonious. But yeah, like, but what is useful? It becomes yeah. useful because it's very easy to say I'm being useful. Yeah. But no one, you know, like that you're not, I find that part of natural movement, and I'm not sure if you're there in Movement Matters, where I bring up vitamin community. Mm -hmm. And I bring up movement ecology and this idea of geese, you know, so yeah. it's like, a geese, a geese, a, a geese, a goose's ability to fly well benefits the other geese in the flock. They require, other, like they require a strong lead goose. But there is no strong lead goose. There's just your turn at being the strong lead goose, and it comes after you've been a child for a while, where there is a long training pattern of getting to not have to be the long goose, but watching it being modeled, contributing to your particular level, which is for many cultures, their play yeah. mimics what their end useful goal will be as a grown up. And so it's, it's always directly, it's training, but it's not, it's not training. It's just their role in a particular community. So like this idea of training, again, that's, that's that scientific parse where you have to name things outside of the situation in which they're happening. And every, I mean, who's to know, like, who, why is anything happening? But I don't know if we would have these same questions if we were looking at different herds of animals and say, like, why are they doing that? Like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't project maybe all the things that we're thinking about why we're doing particular things and why they're doing it. Ultimately, it's to survive, right? It's ultimately to survive. It's, it's biological fitness, right? It's to keep your species moving forward. And that's also move your DNA where I was like, I see these as flags for species propagation which is something that maybe hopefully we're all invested in you know is that i don't know i think there are yeah. some people who are not yeah uh, well but i mean i don't know is, is physical fitness wanting to propagate the species or propagate your particular line if it's your particular line then then those who can propagate who have access to lots of exoskeletons it doesn't they're not as they don't need to be as physically robust, perhaps, to be able to get the things that they need because they're able to get it other ways. Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental problem is that we, we've managed to make, um, to make movement unnecessary, to make competence physically unnecessary for the lives that we live, but I still think it's, it's necessary for our spirit. Um, See, I, I would say that we actively try to reduce our movement, actively. We're constantly pursuing ways to decrease our movement, but at the same time, I think our society really highlights those that are physically fit and, and wants you to go to the gym and go to that movement place and do your movement. I mean, that's what the Olympics essentially are, right? They are, it's like a heralding really of highly competent people who, who just did that. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, you'll, you be the movers, and we will happily watch you on TV with our Cheerios because it's so it's it's you feel like you're part of it when you watch someone else do it. But we all have that biological need to move in that same way. Like you still have the need for the nutrition. And to me, that's why that's why I'm here, you know, to talk about the difference between exercise and movement is because we need such a volume. Um, to be able to do it. We have the need for it, the need for the distribution. We have the need for the nutrition of it yeah. that to continue to pursue fitness without or, or to continue to pursue fitness without looking at how to distribute that movement back into your life, I don't think we're gonna meet our, our nutritional deficit. Yeah. 
yeah. as far as movement goes. So many ideas. I, I know, I know, I know. That's a, that's the tough thing about talking to you. Is like this is like we should be in college, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where we had four years yeah. to just do this. Um, so, uh, well, let me say this because I think maybe this connects. This is the best. The best connection. There's so many connections I could I could leverage off of what you were saying there. But we'll start with this one, which is what I've found in the why for what I'm doing mm. is what seems to. I guess that I think that we train. About training, or let's say practice, or worrying in our life, when we have orientations that give meaning to us, mm. that's that's fundamentally what's most valuable to us. If survival is not the issue, what we need is something that feels meaningful to us. And um, so I, I think of my practice as a, as a practice of, of forming the most heroic of myself. And to be heroic, in some sense, is to to be aimed at what is good. And what's good is good for for me. It's good for my family. It's good for the broader community. It's good for the world. It's good for the environment. It's like that's how you're trying to to, to, to describe it, and and it seems to me like you're you're describing something similar. It's like how do I build movement into my life such that I'm becoming the lead goose, that, or I'm becoming. I'm happy being. I'm happy. You know what it is? Is a sustainable flock needs yeah. needs lots of strength, yeah. strong gooses. So I, I don't think I would teach. Yeah. Like I could just do my thing and be a, a, a strong goose, but it's perhaps you need a whole strong you need a whole strong flock, exactly. right? You need a flock. Be the type of, of person who can become the lead goose when the necess uh, necessity is there. Well, it, but I guess it's always there. But I, I, I understand what you're saying about like we we do perceive that we don't have to participate to survive. Yeah. But that is that's a particular perspective of a particular people who don't who who operate under the protection of many systems many they've outsourced protection to many systems it's not the case for all modern humans mm -hmm. right now whether modern hunter-gatherers or non-modern hunter-gatherers so so I don't know how do you tune back in to your survival I feel like to the primal movement movement or to the movement movement that a lot of people actually are tuning into I mean, I don't know. It's, how would you parse? How would you separate something that gives you meaning versus something that is actually nourishing you? Because we don't recognize the nutrients that we don't know about. Someone else has to tell you that they're good for you, right? I think nourishment and meaning, they might be logically synonymous in some sense. It'd be interesting to fight to come up with a a non-nourishing meaning, like to find yeah. one example of something that gave you meaning yeah. but didn't nourish you well it has to nourish you i mean it is a meaning is like a nourishment of spirit well i mean like yeah yeah i understand I, I got that this is like um this is like one of those conversations where i almost need a pen and a pencil and a, <laughs> a whiteboard to like i just need to diagram it out there you go oh man so um so well let me say that um maybe we can go in a specific direction Let's do it. Like, I mean, there's yeah. there's other. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about this. Like, what would people watching this? What could be like takeaways, or like, what are other things that I think yeah. could be like? Okay. Uh, now. Gotta, okay, we gotta give me something more. I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta dial it down um, a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I got to. Um, I got. I'm, the next chapter that I have to read is the goose chapter. And oh, you're not to movement ecology yet. Oh, it's so good. And then the, and the next chapter of that is the community chapter. What's very interesting about that for me is that my own experiences in teaching right now have been really profoundly about recognizing that actually the thing that people are getting out of my work more than the movement is the community. Yeah. Well, they're the getting community. them both equally. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You're, you're putting back the parts of an orange. Yeah, exactly. But maybe they're at a community deficit more than they were at... A movement deficit, so they're, it's more nourishing their lack of community, but it's meeting all those needs. Like to, yeah. that's what the book is. Movement Matters yeah. is is integrating that. There's a way to get all of the things, exactly. but it requires a dismantling a little bit of of elements that are blocking nutrition, mm -hmm. movement, nutrition, and and other community. And, and that's it's it's very hard. Like um, so, I teach this week long retreat, or return to the source, and 
And so we're out doing hard physical things all day together. We gather food together. We learn about plants and, and everything together. And then we prepare a big meal at the end of the day together. We take a sauna and make fire, learn to mm -hmm. make fire. And at the end of the week, everybody's favorite thing about the week isn't the jump that they did. It's the connection they made to all the other people right. there. And it's through all those, those sort of challenges that they develop a group identity and a group meaning. And, and then they go out back to the world and they talk to me about it. like this is really hard now because yeah. I don't know do it and I don't know what they want to do is, is create that space in their life right. that does that um, and I well that's the conversation well and to, I, I think that's you know like I we talk about natural movement as like we start with sprinting walking jumping like we have all these like really clear things that make yeah. sense and then we have but oh not on texture oh you gotta add texture and then like we need trees and like, oh, you're supposed to be walking through trees. So you keep adding different yeah. things and oh, community was the next one to really say, this isn't like, you know, it would be fun and help you with your exercise adherence is to do it in a group. It's to say that this is actually a nutrient. It doesn't work if you don't have it like this, because this is nature. Like we're, you're just revert. All we're doing is reverse engineering nature, but When you're trying to transition, transition, like we transition to minimal shoes, we're transitioning to community. It starts with a, a class of people. It's nice when you're local and then it's maybe meeting up afterwards. And then it's like um, taking care of each other's kids while you're in class where you're not just a bunch of people who only come together for the exercise part of your life, that you're people who come together for other parts of your life. Because at the end, we've parsed our community. There's the person that you get your exercise from and the person over here that you get this from and the person over there, but they're not related to other aspects of your life. And a community is really someone who's sharing all aspects. So again, it's all like this, this problem of, of how do we recognize the blinders of reductionism and find those places where we can get, you know, I think of something as like, why do I practice natural movement? Because I can harvest nutrition across a broader subset of things. If I'm out in nature, not only am I moving and jumping and moving my body that way, I'm getting the sun and the air and the right. skin. And, and if I'm out with friends, it creates a really strong connection. Um, finding that balance, but for me, it's always also the question of, I, I like living in a world where, where, where there's not 70% engine mortality rates. And, and, I, and I think that there's something that done that's really powerful and we have to recognize the, the costs not in a sense of rejecting the benefits but in, in a sense of, of filling out what's missing because there's something really big that's missing so realize we're running low on time here i wanted to get uh, to some questions uh from the audience so one of the things that uh, came up from a lot of people and something that, that's been really interesting in my work actually is the role of vision mm -hmm. and um, how how should people kind of look at natural movement and vision? How can we use a more naturalized world to help improve our vision? And how does, what are we missing about the whole idea of vision in a culture that, that is so narrow that it loses its eyes? Yeah, right, so that's from Move Your DNA and Movement Matters, yeah. where I'm talking about, I add in uh, quite a bit of distance vision. So, I mean, vision, is the effect of lots of different movements of your eye, but movement is reflexive. It, it really is, um, in a natural setting, it's their reflexive movements that happen when you're like fully immersed in nature, getting the things that you need. So, you know, looking around, we can look at something really tall, I can look for the moon. Um, when you're indoors, you've auto automatically limited the ranges of motions to your eye. So it's like being indoors is like setting the degrees to which you can move your elbows and being outside where all distances are viewable, it just increases the range of motion in which you use your eyes. So in the same way, like, because we don't know any, I mean, I shouldn't say that we don't know. I don't know of the specific distribution of movement nutrients, but considering that our eyes probably move to be able to continue to see, or probably a different way of saying it is, you adapt to what you do. So if you only look at things to a certain amount, over time you're only able to see things to a certain amount. And if you wish to see things further, farther, 
you actually have to go out and look beyond the ranges of emotions that you normally use. And then now um, there's this idea of natural light being an additional benefit that it's not only accommodation, um, which is the change of the shape of your lens based on how far you're looking, but that the contraction of your eye muscles that are allowing the amount of light in are going to change. So you're, again, being out in light, it's not that the light is streaming to you to a nutrient, there's that yeah. too, but it's also that your eyes move in response to light and they move in response to dark. And we've got one level of light plateau. It's like doing one exercise of your eyes all the time. It's like yeah, that, 12 hours of fluorescent. Sort of like the, the, uh, the, the temperature aspect. It totally, it's, it's, right? it's all exactly but the same being thing. Being outdoors where the light is changing more frequently, the yeah. eye has to adapt. This is a very interesting thing that's come out of my practice of natural movement um, in trees. Frequently, people who come from a parkour background in the urban environment—they're very—they find themselves very disoriented moving through mm. trees because the diffuse light can, patterns. Oh, interesting. So yeah. So there's there one your 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 depth of field is is limited by the tree, but also there is light that's coming through the trees, which creates a very—it's actually a very chaotic background. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so there's an acuity, and there's also um, there's a group of. Uh, underwater hunters yeah yeah and their eyes do things that you that you didn't uh, they do things that researchers didn't know human eyes could do but they actually just tested people not from that group and they could get children to have that same adaptation simply by going under the water and looking so we're very malleable we're highly malleable and what's keeping us from being malleable is the environment mm -hmm. in which we're in and so definitely um as far as vision goes, just mix it up for your eyes as much as possible. A couple other things that are interesting to me with vision is um, when you when you walk across, uh, like when you just walk through flat ground, you adopt a, a, a basically 90 degree horizontal uh, horizon line. And when you move through complex terrain, you have to drop your horizon line down. Specifically like in parkour, when you're encountering things that are you have to be very precise with your hidden foot placements then you have to adopt a horizon line that allows any movement in front of your body to be caught in your peripheral vision mm. some of these flow in parkour is actually to some degree dependent on their ability to hold the right horizon line and keep the right things in their peripheral vision so it's actually a really profound eye training mm. um, and if you you can try this experiment you can you can hold your eye line up and your normal eye line walk feel how it glides smoothly across the environment. Then you can drop the eye line to the point where anytime your foot moves in front of your body, that your peripheral vision will catch it. Try to hold that horizon and you'll find that it's gonna be very hard. A lot of times you'll feel it's catching. You actually feel the muscles in your eyes and the brain working hard to try and hold that. Are you dropping the line by moving your head and neck or move by moving your moving eyeballs? Your eyeballs. Uh, moving yeah, because I guess if you drop your weight forward exactly. of your head. You don't want to change right. the rest of your Right, 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 right. Um, so that's a very interesting thing. And then of course, um, Foraging is a profoundly interesting place to, to express the fact that your eyes have capacities that you're not aware of. Um, mm -hmm. Like if you are foraging for mushrooms, I don't actually know this in depth myself, but if you're foraging for mushrooms, there's a specific way of focusing that you have to adopt in order to allow the mushroom to pop out from the, the environment. And this is true of any number of, uh, like looking for animals in an yeah. environment if I've, you're hunting. I've had that phenomenon in Africa before being with bush hunters and being out there and they're like do you see the animal and i'm like i don't see anything nothing yeah. and then it's very similar to they used to be in the mall in the 90s there were these like pixelated pictures where if you relaxed your eyes the image would move forward where you could see a three-dimensional yeah, yeah, do you remember, remember what those yeah, were it was that same skill i was like i don't see anything because i was holding a particular tension mm -hmm. And then once I relaxed my eyes and I could remember when I was doing it, I'm like, I'm doing the same thing. I wasn't glossing over, I wasn't putting like looking at colors or whatever, I could finally see that something was standing in front of something else. And there were, I, I kid you not, like probably 40 animals standing right in front of me that I couldn't see before someone else whose job it was, whose livelihood comes from using that skill all the time uh, was able to point them out. Yeah, so, sorry, this is something that's very interesting to me. One of the things that, that is beautiful to me about the practice of parkour and all the natural movement stuff that I do 
is moving through an environment and seeing all the potential for movement. And it creates a story that you move through that becomes engaging and it's enchanting in the world. And as I've, you know, as I've started doing natural movement and had all these people come to me, um, or a lot of my students end up being people who are also interested in bushcraft, and then I work with them and I pick up elements of bushcraft, and you start realizing that there's a, there's a story intrinsic to the environment that you're completely blind to. Where are all the animals? So, if someone, if you walk through the forest and you deeply know the forest, then there's a story about here's where the biggest little plants are. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. There's a story about this is where the tracks are, which means this is how the animals are moving through the environment. Right. Which is this is the, the there's knowledge. Of it's it's knowledge. There's knowledge. It's knowledge. And that that story to me is this incredible ancestral wealth that we've lost because. Imagine the impoverishment of not being able to read and all the all the information that you be denied. It's like we walk through a world that we can't, that we should be able to. Read. Right. Um, so that's that's not a question. Sorry again, but uh, but but I, how? What did, I would say? Have you experienced the same sensation of the opening of your eye and how that makes the world actually more meaningful? I don't know if it makes it more meaningful. I. I think that I understand more my, the cultural influence on my perception that I am not part of the natural world. The, the kind of repetitive um, that you're different than an animal, you're better, you're more deserving, like that these, that these are all narratives that go along with um, an inability to almost be and see all of the knowledge that's available there. Right now, I get my knowledge by reading someone else's story, mm-hmm. right? So, um, that, but there is, there's a, there's a separate story that gives um, equal and maybe even more helpful information because the payoff usually is directly a mushroom. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> or like, like the payoff is not going, oh, I know the thing now in a, in an, in a way that might not be applicable like, I think that's a difference like that. I, I feel like the diff- what you're talking about is a way of that our definition of knowing comes from hearing someone else's narrative about something and assuming it as ours. Where more meaningful, I would probably say, I have a way of knowing that makes me again more capable in this particular environment. I don't know if it decreases my capability of being in another environment. I suspect that it does. I, I suspect that I don't have an endless capacity to belong to every particular environment at the same time, that I have to pick and engage and adapt to that one. And so I've got, I've got half skills, because in order to get the full knowledge here, I'd have to leave the knowledge that I'm getting from over here. But the knowledge over here makes me suited for this environment and the knowledge over here makes me suited for that environment. So I'm at the point where I'm starting to choose. Yeah. How many days, what, I, what environment do I want to adapt to? Absolutely. You have to, you have to curate the information that you, that you carry in your brain so that it allows you to, to be the version of yourself that you want. Yeah, I have to let go of the McDonald's jingles from my youth <laughs> and identify more mushrooms. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so thank you very much, Katie. It was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. Um, I hope we get to have many more, and uh, look forward to uh, finishing your book. Yeah, get on so it. So everybody read that book. <laughs> Thanks.